Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. The second reading is in Philippians chapter 1, starting at verse 27. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. I have a friend who used to work in the police, And he once explained to me how the police stop a vehicle when they suspect criminals in the vehicle have firearms. And it was fascinating to read how carefully they plan that kind of a stop. Um, They have a, a first officer who is very clearly telling them to get out of the car and is pointing a taser at them. Stood behind that officer is a second officer Uh, with a a gun that will fire rubber bullets, so more force. And then behind them, on their shoulder, is a third officer who is carrying a firearm with live ammunition. And in a situation that is very, very serious and could escalate very, very seriously, there's plan A, which is the officer with the taser, there's plan B, which is the officer with the rubber bullets, and there's Plan C, as a last resort, the officer with the live ammunition. And there are situations in life, aren't there, where you do need a plan A, a plan B, a plan C, a D, an F, or whatever else, as you think through a difficult situation. The Christian life is not like that, friends. The Christian life doesn't have a a plan A, a plan B, and a plan C. Scripture teaches us, in terms of living the Christian life, there is plan A, because it's God's instruction for how we should live as his redeemed people. 
And last week, as we saw the previous section in, first, in uh, Philippians chapter 1, James focused us in on verse 21, where Paul there says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And as we think about that well-known challenging phrase, we might say that that is Paul's motto for the Christian life. Paul's motto for the Christian life. And as we move down to the next section in Philippians this morning, here we find the daily duty of every Christian. We might say this passage is what God is telling us what every Christian must do. This is plan A for living the Christian life. And Paul really wants us to pay attention. He wants us to know that this is a vital point because in verse 27 it starts with whatever happens. And in the original the word is only. And it has that sense of... Now, if you are just going to listen to one thing I say, you know students when you're in university and the lecturer says, just listen to one thing, listen to this. You know what they're telling you. They're telling you what's going to come on the exam next week. So your ears particularly prick up, don't they? And your eyes, you specially awaken yourself and you make sure you are writing everything down because this is especially important. And that's what Paul is doing for us as he begins verse 27 having spoken of what we might say was his personal testimony, which we learned so much from, he now comes to give to us, well, what we might say is a direct challenge. The Christian life looks like this, Paul says. And he says there are three things that we must always do, and we're going to see two reasons why we must do them. So let's begin, first of all, with the first thing that Paul says he must do in verse 27, where we read, whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit. So here Paul is telling us to live worthy, our first point. The Christian life is a life where we are called to live a holy life, to live worthy of the gospel as God's redeemed people, as those who are precious to God, as Andy reminded us in 1 Peter. As we, as we heard in, in Ephesians chapter 2 and, and thought of that wonderful work of God's amazing salvation that is true of every person here who has trusted in Jesus Christ. We are called to be holy. We have been saved from the penalty of sin through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have been freed from the power of sin through the power of his spirit in our hearts. And so we are called to strive to be free from the presence of sin in our lives. We might say that this passage parallels many others in the scriptures. It parallels Ephesians chapter 2 that we heard uh, read for us just before we came to our reading. Because right at the end of Ephesians chapter 2 in verse 8, 9 and 10, Paul says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For... We are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And 
If we had read on, although Andy, I asked Andy not to do so, so that we might do it now. If we'd read on in 1 Peter chapter 2, and those verses that Andy started a service with, there in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. God calls you, Christian, to live a life worthy of the gospel. Not worthy in the sense that you earn your salvation but worthy in the sense that all of your life is in keeping with the fullness of the call of the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ, by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, our eternal destiny is transformed. We have fellowship with God here and now, and friends, in addition to all of that, we have a call that the gospel may affect everything in our lives. It is a lived message. It is about eternal life, but also about the here and now. Not because works contribute to our salvation, but because true faith bears fruit. And that's what's being put before us here as as Paul gives us this strong challenge to live the Christian life. And and notice the focus of the verbs that are active and visible. It's about an active, fruitful, visible obedience. And and it's it's an all-of-life obedience because there in verse 27, middle of the verse, Paul makes reference to whether he hears about them or he sees them in person, he will know that they are going on. And so in that sense, what is he saying? He's saying, it shouldn't matter whether I'm there, friends. It shouldn't matter whether I'm looking over your shoulder, friends, because the Lord is still the Lord of your life in all of those things. And that reminds us, doesn't it, that whilst it may be easier in all kinds of good ways to live a godly life around other Christians it is no less important that we continue to live a godly life wherever we are. Whether we're in public or we're in private. Whether around friends, perhaps at university, and have the privilege of living with Christian housemates, or whether we're at home and we're in a very different context if that is our circumstance. It is no less important that we practice consistent godliness, whether in private or in public. Now, how is it we live a life worthy? Well, Paul explains it for us there in verse 27, because right there in the middle of the verse, he says, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit. So he's giving us more explanation of living this worthy life, standing firm in one spirit. And I find that helpful because it reminds me that that it's not complicated to live the Christian life. In many ways, it's a calling to stand firm, to not 
compromise on the gospel in how we live. It is, we might say, to keep going and to hold on to God's truth in all that it means for our lives. One of the implications of entering midlife, which I I think I've just begun to, is that you stop trying to beat your previous best time in anything you used to do, and you're just happy if you go as fast as last time. Or to put it another way, you stop trying to lose an inch or two to fit into smaller clothes, and you're just happy if the clothes you used to have still fit. You're just trying to maintain. And in many ways, that's what we're being called to do here. Stand firm. Don't depart. Don't compromise in belief, in word, and in deed over the gospel. And it's so important we see that because so often... The problem might be that we start so strong, but yet we don't keep going. And ever so gradually, we compromise. And that's the biggest danger. So let's be very specific. Living worthy of the gospel, what might that mean? Well, living worthy of the gospel means something about our responses when we're attacked or we're slighted. And so it has real practical implications for the words that come out of my mouth and the words that I type with my finger on a device. Live worthy of the gospel. Living worthy of the gospel has an implication to how I respond to invitations So maybe our brother-in-law commits adultery, leaving our sister. And then he decides to get remarried to the lady he committed adultery with. And you're invited to celebrate the wedding. Live worthy of the gospel. Or, perhaps we're invited to attend and celebrate the kind of union that God says is not marriage. And friends, we want to do all that we can to show love as Christians. We want to do all that we can to show that we love people and we care for people. And that might mean that we meet and we explain personally our reasons But how can we celebrate what God calls sin? When our presence in that occasion is a mark of affirmation of that union. Or what about this, practical godliness? It means something for what we look at with our eyes. Or should I say where we look with our eyes? In the workplace and in the gym. It means something for what we wear in the workplace and in the gym. It has far-reaching implications. 
And friends, we must grapple with these because there is a gospel of the world which calls us to believe certain things, to celebrate certain things, and to live worthy of the values of that gospel. But it's not God's gospel. It's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. It offers no forgiveness. It offers no cleansing of conscience. And that ever-changing demands that are there in the world outside, well, they crush us, don't they? Because you can never know what you need to do next to meet the ever-changing standards of that gospel. But friends, there is a gospel of Jesus Christ, a gospel that calls us to repentance and faith. A gospel that says you cannot earn eternal life, but it can only be yours as a gift. A gospel that offers true cleansing and forgiveness. Every other gospel leaves you with a conscience that isn't really clear. But this gospel, through the work of our Savior, cleanses our consciences fully and finally. And because we have been cleansed by the blood of the Lord Jesus, it leads to a distinctive, godly lifestyle. It leads to speaking the truth in love. And we have to choose, friends, which gospel will we believe for salvation and eternal life and will we live worthy of. And when you see it that way, it's not really a choice, is it? Choose to live worthy of this gospel. But then secondly, and that was our longest point, live worthy of this gospel. Secondly, strive together. And here we look at the end of verse 27, where we see a call to unity. Now, as we think of unity, unity does not mean unanimity of views, where everyone thinks exactly the same thing all the time. But it means a unity of spirit and mind in a shared purpose. And so at the end of verse 27, what does Paul say? He says, striving together, love the activeness of that, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. And it's really striking uh, to to notice all the, the unity together language. So forgive me, I should have started because it's kind of overlaps. I should have started with the end of the last um, imperative. So I will know that you stand firm, middle of the verse. I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Do you see all of those words there? You've got one spirit. I think that most likely isn't a reference to the Holy Spirit, but rather is a, a reference to a sense of oneness among the people of God. And then you've got, you've got that striving together of one purpose. You are together in the gospel in that sense. You also have as one, uh, as one for the faith of the gospel. And the word there, as one, is actually one soul, kind of a unified soul. And it has this sense of being together in heart and in mind and in spirit With the Lord's people, we're joined in Christ and we're striving together for the singular faith of the gospel. Do you see it all? All the ways in which Paul is saying it's unity together. 
You might picture this with the Roman tortoise, which is a great picture of strength and stability. I think I've got a photo for the screens. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. So um, the Roman tortoise there that the Roman soldiers would form by interlocking their shields. Can you see it there in the, um, in the uh, uh, statue uh, inscription? Um, they're interlocked, and there's great strength in that interlocking formation such that when the arrows come or the swords, they just fly off and they don't get through because you're together working in that sense. Now, we all know that that kind of formation has to be practiced, doesn't it? That kind of approach from the soldiers, they don't just suddenly decide to do it in battle and they haven't worked at it before. They have practiced this. That kind of unity reminds us, that reminds us this kind of unity must be practiced as well. You can't just work it out when it's needed. You have to be about it all the time such that when it's needed, it's just natural. And in reality, friends, that that requires presence and time together. It requires a willingness to be vulnerable and a willingness to live together as a body and to share with each other. But when we can do that, there is great strength. My brother-in-law, Montz, um, shared with me a wonderful story of the California Redwoods, which if you know anything about them, they're, they're hundreds of meters high. They're very, very tall trees. And it's astonishing. You stand there and you think, how is it that they stay up? But the secret's below the surface. Because the way they stay up is their roots are interlinked. So because they are deeply connected, they are incredibly strong. And the devil's greatest weapon is disharmony within the people of God. That is not to say that we never disagree or we never challenge one another. That's biblical to challenge each other. And it's right that we want to grapple in the scriptures together. But as James would say, we keep on leaning in even as we do that. We keep on locking arms even as we labor together. So can I encourage us all never to allow Satan or sin a foothold in your life or in our fellowship in this way. Strive for unity. And we need that, and we grow in that through evangelism, friends. One of the great things, I'm so thankful that Simeon and Rich shared about that opportunity we have to do evangelism together, because one of the greatest ways in which we as a people of God can grow in unity is by serving together. Because as you do Christian service with other believers, you grow closer to them and you link in more firmly with them. I'm sure to see you after a week of mission and time together, you feel closer and more connected. And that's a good thing. That's a godly thing. 
And as the pressure builds from the world and the attacks come more and more and those arrows and those swords come from the evil one, what do we need? Well, we need to be even more alert to this and interlocked as brothers and sisters. So the challenge, and here's a challenge for us all, is to choose to make time for fellowship and hospitality. Choose to make time to be with brothers and sisters. There are always other things that we might do, but you cannot form a tortoise without training. Strive together, a call for unity. And then thirdly, and we're still in verse, um, oh no, we're in verse 28, have no fear. Have no fear. And there Paul says, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Now, the clear thought here is about external opposition. So it's those outside of the church, because that's, um, Paul has been speaking um, positively. Uh, re- he could rejoice even in those who were opposing him earlier on. So I don't think he has problems internally in view here. I think he's thinking about attacks from the outside and he's saying, have courage. And the language here of those who oppose you is, this word oppose is the same word that's used in other situations, an opposer for Satan. So it has this sense of satanic, demonic attack upon the people of God's. And so it's, it's a significant thing that Paul is saying is there that might cause us to fear. And so you can say, well, it's understandable to be fearful in that kind of situation, isn't it, friends? And we know that perhaps ourselves, that, that people are strong. And when opposition comes, it's hard. And the penalties and the costs can feel very, very great when we're going to stand for the gospel. And there are all those reasons, and they're very understandable that we might be fearful, but there are even greater reasons for courage. There are even greater reasons not to fear, because God is stronger. Because whilst whatever cost may come may hurt us, they are nothing compared, as Paul says later in Philippians, to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. We've got to remember that. We've got to keep on counting the surpassing worth of knowing him because that's the greatest gain. And so we might say, therefore, courage and confidence comes from the gospel. And so we might need to change the way we measure what really matters. Because too often, we weigh too heavily the penalties for standing. And if we're being honest, and I count myself as much in this as any, we perhaps are too... We do not properly weigh the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. And I've just found it helpful, and I share a book that's helped me, this book, Courage, How the Gospel Creates Christian Fortitude, by an author called Joe Rigney. And he just dwells on the gospel, and all the gospel, the reasons in which the gospel gives us confidence. 
And as we think about this call not to have fear, notice again, like the other two, it is a call to deliberate action. Now, now so often, the attitude of our hearts when we face trouble is to do what? It's to run and hide. And I understand that. I feel that myself. But that is not what God calls us to do. God calls us to have courage and not fear. As a family, we've been enjoying listening to the theme track from the Wonka film. And there's one song in the film uh, called A World of Your Own. And it's sung by the lead character, Wonka, when he's encouraging. I don't commend everything in the film, um, just to be clear. But um, what Wonka is doing is he's trying to encourage people to come in to his new chocolate shop. And he sings this song at the grand opening ceremony. And perhaps it's because I've listened to it a lot, or perhaps as one of my sons says, it's a really horrible thing to be a preacher dad because every time you listen to something, you analyze it. Uh, But the song goes like this. A world of your own, a place to escape to, where you can be free. This is your home. It continues. A world of your own, a place to go when you're feeling alone feeling unsure. Now, those emotions are things that we all feel at times. But the narrative of the song is to retreat into the chocolate and everything that's associated with it. The call of God's word is to look at the gospel and to have courage Because God is greater and to live worthy. And so we are to stand, we are to strive, we are to not be frightened. And because we do not fear, we do not give in in the ways in which Satan particularly wants to attack the people of God. We do not accept the battlefields that Satan chooses because he knows where we're weakest. And he wants us to battle purely, and I think the big battlefield at the minute he wants Christians to come onto is the purely discussion about love and acceptance. And say everything we do must be driven by love and acceptance, rather than the biblical pattern of the truth spoken in love. And he wants us to fight with the weapons he proposes, engaging in worldly arguments, saying, well, Christians should be loving, so how can you think this or do that? And instead, friends, courage calls us to contend on God's terms, not Satan's. To do so with the spiritual weapons of the word and prayer, And as Paul says in Ephesians 5, to have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. But rather expose them as we speak truth in love, calling all to repentance and faith and living a life worthy of the gospel in everything. So those are the three big calls of these verses. Now, we can, in this room, I'm sure, think of hundreds of reasons why that's important. 
But Paul closes his section by giving us two. Notice in the middle of verse 28, he says, Without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you, this is a sign. And the question is, how far does back does this, does the, this go? Is it just the fact that you don't fear, or might it be all three? And could be either. I lean towards the fact he's thinking about all three. So as we think about this call to live worthy, stand, strive together, sorry, and not be frightened, he's going to give us two reasons why we should do that. And the first is there in verse 28, because he says, this is a sign to them, that is those who oppose you, that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. So, first reason why it's important that we do this is because it is a sign of judgment to unbelievers. It's very easy for all of this to feel just like a political game. But it's not, is it? Eternity is at stake. We're dealing in the matters of eternity because those who sin against God, including the sins of harming the people of God, that is those who oppose, verse 28, who do not turn to Christ, Paul says here, they'll be destroyed. God says they will know eternal judgment along with all who do not turn and trust, bowing the knee to Christ, including me and you, unless we've trusted in the Lord Jesus. And it will be a sign, Paul says, to their conscience. It will be a sign to them, and I think he's saying here to their conscience, because he doesn't give the impression that they will be saved, sadly, but rather that they will become in some way convicted of the truth of judgment that is to come. That is to say that in all that they deny of God's truth, they will actually, through the actions of the people of God, some will come to realize that what God says is true. Not savingly, but in a recognition in some sense. and I think what Paul is saying to us here is that deep down they will know that God is real. Because how else could people live like this? How else could people strive together like this? How else could they have that courage no mere ideology, no charismatic leader, no shared experience could do that, however powerful. Only the God of heaven, living in the soul of people, can change them such that they live like that. And there is in that sense an encouragement 
if you're a Christian this morning, because we can be assured that God will use your witness in life to convict conscience, and that will glorify God. But then there's a second way that it's a sign. It's a sign of judgment to unbelievers, but then secondly, it's a sign of salvation to you as believers, and this is the last thing we turn to. And here we've said already, haven't we, that that saving faith bears fruit in works and in life. So one of the ways in which, in the kindness of God, we grow in our assurance, that is our confidence that we are saved, is by God working such that we might show these characteristics of living worthy, striving together, And not being fearful. Now, please hear me carefully. I'm not saying that for any of us, we would expect to have them 100%, because none of us do. But what I think we are seeing here is that whilst we all fall short in all three to some degree, at the same time, there will be a presence to some degree and in the kindness of God for many, a growing strength that gives assurance. Because where else would that come from, friends, that we would do those things? I'm a coward. I think many of us are. Sorry, forgive me, but is it true? I think so, isn't it? Left to myself, my human nature, I'm a coward. But God's Spirit in your heart gives you courage. God's spirit in your heart helps you to lean in, to strive together. And God's spirit in your heart helps you to live worthy. And Paul goes on slightly further because he says, our our sufferings and our struggles as believers further confirm our salvation as God's people. Notice in verse 29, Paul uh, continues... Uh, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Do you see the tightness there of belief and suffering? And what we're being shown here is that suffering as a Christian, not because we've made trouble unnecessarily, but because we've stood for the Lord Jesus, suffering as a Christian is a mark of true Christianity. And so that means, as many have said, that we need to reinterpret our suffering. So, and particularly as we think about the suffering that might come because we're a Christian and because we testify to Christ and because we live worthy, we often understandably ask the question, well, Lord, why do you allow that to happen to me? But rather the question we should ask is, Lord, how can I continue to glorify you in this? Because suffering is an opportunity to glorify God as we trust him and testify to his grace. And so in that way, it is a gift because Paul there says, doesn't he? He says, it has been granted to you. So that means it must be a gift that's given. And so how is it a gift? Well, it's not a gift in the pain and the hardship and the tears and the trials and all the things we might lose. But it is a gift in the privilege to glorify God as we stand for the truth and as we make him known. 
So if you are suffering right now, particularly because of your Christian testimony, can I encourage you to change the question from not why am I suffering, Lord, but to how can I glorify you in this? And if you are in the kindness of God not suffering right now, can I encourage you to internalize that connection between believing and suffering? Richard Gaffin has said this, the Christian life is not an only, but also proposition. That is to say, it is not only believing, but also suffering, and the two are linked. But as God's people continue to trust him and continue to bear testimony in their suffering, we see among one another and a watching world that looks on sees the undeniable difference that Jesus Christ makes when he lives in the heart of the believer. And that's something of what the author of Hebrews wants us to think about in Hebrews chapter 11. You know what's passage that's known as the great hall, hallway of faith? Well, you have all those lists of godly believers who testified that they hoped for a better country, as Hebrews puts it. And that we too are looking for that better country. What did they do? They lived worthy, striving together without fear. And so as we close, perhaps we'll read, or let us read from Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 32. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again, There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released, so that they might gain an even greater, sorry, an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and floggings and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts, mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith. Yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us they be made perfect. Dear God, We praise you and we bless you for the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that by faith in the gospel of Jesus, 
We have been saved from all of the eternity that our judgment deserved, that we might walk in newness of life. Lord, we confess that none of us have walked worthy. Forgive us, we pray, and grant to us by your Spirit that renewed desire that in all that we think and all that we say and all that we do, we might commend the gospel. We love our Saviour and all that he is to us because of all that he has done for us. And so we ask that by your grace, you would equip us with everything necessary that we might stand and having done all else, stand. We pray this for the glory of Jesus. Amen.